All right, welcome to another special episode of Sockers Is That So. Today, we're going to be speaking to resident doctor Mohammed Nuru in New York City. Welcome to the show, Mo. Hey, Saka. Pleasure to be on the program. Of course. All right, man. So why don't we dive straight into it? Uh, this will be a bit of a unique episode because we typically speak about venture capital, investing, business, tech, and all that. But we've never had someone in the medical industry uh, speak about their side of things. And so why don't we start off with, in your day-to-day kind of role, where does tech and finance kind of meet the medical world? In what capacities or what tasks or in what ways do you see those two worlds ever meeting on a day-to-day basis? You know, it's very interesting. I think... Uh... So the person, you know, or the Joe on the street, it's hard to imagine that, you know, something like healthcare would have anything to do with finances and, you know, finance and tech. I think the public perception of healthcare is it's this a very uh, altruistic field, which it is, you know, and it's it's very um, bioscience based and it's very sort of hands-on, but tech and and uh, finances are the, you know, probably the foundation of, of what is, you know, one of the largest industries in, in the U.S. and if not the world, really. So it, it, it plays a lot. In my day-to-day as a resident, um, uh, from what we call our EHR system, which is the electronic healthcare record, it's sort of the platform on which we um, document interactions with patients, how we um, set billing for procedures, um, how we place orders, how we communicate amongst ourselves within healthcare organizations. I mean, you have multiple units communicating with each other at a given time under sort of a closed um, uh, like firewalls and, and, and what have you. But on the day-to-day, it's, it's how we conduct business now, anyway, in the 21st century. Yeah. You know, the thing is, growing up, you... I always remember people saying like uh, doctor's handwriting is absolutely, you know, abysmal, right? That's like the common thing that you hear. And then, you know, I was surprised when I'd go to hospitals and they still use like archaic, like, you know, handwritten notes to do things and whatnot. And I'm just thinking, why don't you all just get tablets? It's much quicker, safer. There's no room for misinterpretation. You know, is it still as analog as it once was or is everything really digital now? And if it isn't, are there any like barriers as to why things aren't as digitized as maybe in other industries? Mm-hmm. For the most part, I'd say it's, it's pretty digitized now. It's mm-hmm. pretty digitized. Um, you know, I think the, the, last, uh, the last hill in a sort of uh, medicine to where it was, it was more analog was with script writing. So whenever you prescribe a medication, let's say, you know, someone was admitted into the hospital and now they're discharged and you want them to pick up medications at a pharmacy or something, it used to be that you would have to print out a script and fill it out with specific information that they would take to the uh, pharmacy and they would get the medication. I mean, there's some institutions that still do that, but for the most part, a lot of people just e-prescribe. So it's sort of put into your computer, you order from a certain pharmacy or it's sent to a certain pharmacy, but you also have a, a specific code, you know, attached to your license that you can put in that um, sort of, you know, on the pharmacy side, they can identify that as, okay, this is a legitimate prescription from XYZ. So uh, for the most part, yeah, we've kind of done away with uh, sort of handwritten uh, notes as far as how they make it to the general public. Anyway, amongst ourselves, we still have our own little notes and things that we take down, which are, you know, between physicians are even difficult to to uh, decode 
Yeah. Even within physicians, there's some physicians that will write something down and then later on in the day, you might not recognize what you what you put down, which is pretty funny. Yeah. Actually, one of my friends, unfortunately, he lost his mom as a result of like a doctor writing down something and people couldn't actually understand what was written. It was supposed to be like a blood thickener and they did the complete opposite and they got like a blood thinner. And then his mom ended up passing away. And it's, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, man, that's so unfortunate because, you know, this is something that if it was like a drop down, like a scroll kind of thing, you know, if someone chose something, there's no misinterpretation because of handwriting and things of that nature. But it's good to hear that things are moving forward. And actually today I just read that there was something called, is it Palm 2? It's like a chat GPT, like an AI script. And it just passed like the medical exam. Um, it got like an 86.5% like score. So I'm thinking like from your perspective, what are the chances of like chat GPT-3 or AI taking over like a doctor's job? Or there's some things that it'll never be able to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, AI in, in healthcare space. I mean, that's a it's a it's a big uh, it's a big topic. A very interesting field. One that I'm sort of a very much interested in in figuring out uh, research and uh, sort of um, uh, use situations for AI in my research. But I think the the practice of medicine is so it's so intricate and complex and there's a lot of pattern recognition, which AI does really well when it's well-trained, but there's, there's a human element that still, uh, that still uh, evades AI at this time. Um, it's very easy to sort of rely on uh, sort of uh, uh, past experience, sort of aggregated past experience to make a medical decision and miss Sort of nuances of particular cases. Um, if an AI, and, and essentially, if an AI system has never seen something, a variation of something before, it, it's less likely to know what to do or be as creative in coming up with solutions. Um, you know, there are a lot of practical things in, in healthcare in which um, you kind of have to use creativity to get around problems. So AI might not be there yet. But as a tool to help uh, sort of streamline uh, medical processes, I can see it being very, very useful to, uh, to physicians in, in, in that it can sort of transform the way we practice medicine for the better, for you know, improved uh, uh, lifestyle, um, better uh, revenue generation, all of that. So I think it has a space. I mean, it's already sort of, it's been highly involved in other other fields and study. It's it's only a matter of time before it, medicine has its own sort of um, day. Yeah, because I mean, when you think of going to the doctor, a lot of people get a second opinion, right? Because you're like you mentioned, you're relying on the aggregate experience of that doctor. And that's why people like established doctors, 50, 60 years old that have been there, done that, right? The more experience, the better. At least that's what my layman brain tells me, or people from the outside, right? Um, and so I'm thinking, in order, I mean, what could be more experienced than AI that can source from thousands of potential cases that are out there? Or if I want to get a second opinion, 
you know, AI can be that second opinion instead of going to another doctor because I can just put in my symptoms. And much like Google tells you when you have a pimple on your face, you're dying of cardiac arrest or you have the worst symptoms or, you know, like anytime you type it into Google, it tells you the worst of the worst. I feel like AI will be able to give some of that nuance. But if there was any use case you could think of right now that you would love to apply AI in, uh, especially in the medical field, what do you think that would be? Would it be actually diagnosing or would it be like reading diagrams where you're, as a doctor, you're likely to miss something on a chart? Like what would be ways you would love to apply it? I mean, great ways to apply AI medicine. I think in the streamlining process, I think uh, just broadly speaking, AI is probably in healthcare right now, as I can imagine, it'll be most useful in kind of getting a whole bunch of, say you have a whole bunch of, a whole lot of input that typically a physician would have to review on their own, on their own bit by bit by bit. AI would be great in taking all of that, those inputs and saying, these are the most important things you should review. And then simplifying the, the rest of it. I, I guess I can only really explain this with like a case example. For instance, radiologists. So radiologists are uh, physicians, uh, medically trained, that review uh, imaging medical imaging, CTs, uh, MRIs, X-rays that are ordered by other physicians within a hospital system that are supposed to aid for a diagnosis or treatment plans. Mm -hmm. Now, because it's an image-based sort of uh, um, exercise, there are patterns that even radiologists have developed. There, there are code names for signs that mean uh, certain diagnoses. Uh, we already know that AI, there's, there's a form of AI, uh, it's called convolution, convolutional uh, neural networks. And there are specific AI algorithms that are used to um, sort of solve problems related to uh, images, right? So you can train one of these AI systems to, you know, based off of uh, a backlogged data that, that's been attached to you know, uh, a diagnosis, you can train them to identify these diagnoses. And this is something that could be routinely or, or could reduce the workload on radiologists by feeding all that input to them. And then the radiologist simply just has to confirm if, you know, the read is, uh, you know, uh, if it's correct or if it's inaccurate, or, you know, there might be, you know, in, in, a, in a pile of different x-ray images or CT images, there might be four that are sort of out of the ordinary and the remaining 30 are just routine, normal, normal scan, normal scan. The AI system say, you know, today's radiologist shows up to work at, I don't know, 7 a.m. just so they can get through, you know, 30 images before they can start their day and get more images. You can have an AI system at the, at the head of the morning, read all those images. The radiologist can come in at 9 a.m. knowing that you know, 90% of those images have been read and there's a corresponding, you know, readout, maybe like a one-liner for each image and their attention can only be or should only be put on the very complicated images, the three images. So in that you've saved, you know, someone maybe two or three hours worth of sleep. But that's a very simple example. But things like that, things that can sort of streamline the uh, diagnosis process in, in a safe manner, at least as AI rolls out and becomes more, Sort of involved in, in the healthcare space, I can see I can see that being a great you know, use application. Yeah, no, I I definitely want to come back to the hours worked because I remember you told me something along the lines of you know the number of hours you work like twelve hours a day, six days a week, and all that, and I was blown away because I thought 
you know, doctors should be as relaxed as possible. So they're as, you know, clear headed as possible. So we'll definitely speak about the hours worked. But a lot of people are entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. And some of them might be in the life sciences space where they want to sell into hospitals or come up with new inventions and maybe, um, you know, um, do a pilot program right at a particular hospital and things of that nature. What are some of the avenues that an entrepreneur can go down in order to be successful in this medical space? Are there certain uh, institutions they can go to, certain grants they can go to? In other words, how can they get like a pilot or some new innovation sold into a hospital and actually be successful as an entrepreneur in this space? Do you have any tips or anything that you'd recommend? I think uh, that's a great question. I think tips I'd recommend um, reaching out to uh, physicians that are that are particularly interested in innovation in the space, because ultimately, you know, entrepreneurs are great at sort of taking ideas or cranking them up into scale, and and actually sort of figuring out how to uh, mass market an idea. And they're and, and entrepreneurs are great leaders, so are physicians but they work in two sort of separate realms. You have the physician that has all that basic science knowledge and they're kind of the practitioner of the space. So they have, you know, by virtue of doing this daily, they see the holes or the opportunities. If you're, and if you're a particularly innovative person overall in, in your own life, you see the holes and opportunities for improvement. So I, I would recommend entrepreneurs reach out to uh, medical professionals, physicians, that are particularly particularly have an eye on improving, you know, healthcare practice, and in that collaboration, I think is is the uh, would be the impetus for for actual actual success in the field because it is very it's 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 very um it's very hard for one or the other to do it alone from my perspective. There's there's only so much time to uh, to learn medicine, and there's only so much time to learn business and finance and and that sort of know how. Yeah. So yeah. Collaboration. Yeah. So do do a lot of, I don't want to say medical practitioners, physicians, do a lot of them even try and become entrepreneurs? So when they see problems, do they actually, like, is there a spirit of entrepreneurship and finance or, or tech within the medical world? Or is it more so you see a lot of problems, but you're just trying to get through the day. Like you're just trying to get through the program. You Like you don't have the time to actually be an entrepreneur. Like in short, is it like one or two percent that end up actually even trying to, or end up, you know, end up trying to create a, a solution to a problem they find, or the majority of people just like, look, the system is the system. I'm just trying to get through it, get my paycheck, or just help people in the best way possible, or you know, be a, an actual medical practitioner as opposed to even trying entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. I couldn't tell you what the percentages are, but I could sort of comment to that um, to that vein. I think. Um, a lot of uh, physicians in training right now have what we call in medical education uh, sort of a scholarly interest. Mm. So there's some physicians that want to be physician scientists. So, you know, on the back end of uh, learning medicine, whatever time they can squeeze, they sort of dedicate to a scholarly activity. Like the research people would be learning how to write papers, how to uh, generate a hypothesis, how to test that hypothesis, and all the related um, 
sort of process behind getting approval for, you know, a project, um, you know, uh, getting uh, funding, grants, all that stuff. So that's that in itself is a whole little career that's attached on or latched on to their medical degree. You have people that are interested in social sciences. So they'll, they'll have an MD degree, but then they'll dedicate a fraction of their training to getting an MPH, so a Master's of Public Health. They might be interested in uh, advocacy. You know, they might be interested in um, lobbying. So they go in that direction. You have a sect of people that are interested in entrepreneurship uh, to various degrees. Some people get MBAs with their MD programs. In fact, there are medical schools that will allow you to take a year out of med school to go to business school. So you can have an MD, MBA. Those are the people that are probably the more uh, traditionally recognized uh, entrepreneurial group. Mm. Um, what other examples are there? Those are the, those are like the three, the three main ones. So there are people out there, um, but on the uh, on the local level, people who might not have those degrees, there's still people that recognize problems and they try to advocate within their own um, sort of system, you know, um, uh, lobbying with uh, healthcare executives or, you know, the immediate superiors about, you know, these are things we can change and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of physicians are um, are interested in improving uh, not just quality of care, but quality of the workspace. Uh, it's, it's a field filled with people that are very um, uh, analytical about what they do. And uh, efficiency is, is something that's, uh, that rings true amongst all those different sort of, uh, you know, um, interests that physicians may decide to, to attach to like the degree. Yeah. So why is healthcare so expensive, man? Especially in the U.S. Like, from your perspective, you're working day to day. Like, why is it so expensive? Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's a tough question. Um, the costs of healthcare, you know, we can we can think of it as you know, f- from a relative perspective to what it used to be and what it is now. You know, and a lot of people will say the reason why it's more expensive than it used to be is in part driven by sort of uh, the rise in, in, our, in our average lifespan, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the shift in our demographics. We have older populations now. And, you know, it's, it's in a whole bunch of data online and anyone can look this up that a large fraction of healthcare costs are actually paid or, or um, what's the word? Are, uh, are spent on uh, people over the age of, uh, of 60, 65, because as you get older, you develop chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. We figured out ways with our, our medications to keep people alive for a longer time. And so they spend or they require more healthcare services. It's almost something that feeds into itself. It's cyclical. Whereas you have people under the age of 30 that you know their total healthcare costs, I think for people under the age of 30, Per year is probably something like two thousand or three thousand dollars on average, versus people over the age of 50, 65, You may be looking at twenty thousand dollars mm. a year. Thirty, sixty-five. So it, it it goes up. So that's one thing. Another element of it is the the epidemic that is obesity, and what obesity does to health overall. You know, obesity. You have rises in uh, lipids and, and cholesterol in the blood. And you have vascular disease as a result of that, you know, there are more invasive procedures that need to come into the fold to actually treat conditions. And those invasive procedures require 
very skilled um, uh, uh, techniques and procedures that take years to acquire. And in people acquiring those, you know, and people chasing those um, uh, skills and acquiring those, that's, that's uh, human labor time. And then so a, a dollar amount is, is ascribed to that. So there's that. And then you think about, you know, how physicians are paid or how the healthcare industry generates, you know, money. And that's a huge, a huge, huge topic. I know we'll, we sort of chatted a little bit that we would get into, but just to answer your question succinctly, mm. those are some examples of why, you know, healthcare is so expensive. Yeah, actually, that's a good segue. We can go straight into like the economics and how the industry even makes money. And I think with a focus on, I mean, we can start off with salaries as well, because I know a lot of people talk about how doctors are supposedly the guys that make half a million a year and they're Bugattis and like, you know, but what's the actual reality of someone that is in the early stage of their medical career and then in the later stage, I mean, you have to put student loans into account. Like what is the actual reality of, I guess, salaries within this medical field? Because during the pandemic, I was hearing of nurses making 150, almost $200,000, you know, 10,000 a week or whatever it is. And then other times I'm hearing like resident doctors that are in their second year are making like 50 grand or 60 grand. And I'm just like, how, how is that possible that a nurse is making three times as much as someone that's a future MD, you know what I mean? So it just, it doesn't make sense to me from the outside looking in, but from your perspective, what's the landscape look like? Yeah, you know, it's another very interesting question, you know, um, physician salaries and compensation um, are very much uh, uh, set, sort of set. So overall, that's an interesting question. So overall, um, overall, the idea behind physician compensation and and what uh, what value we can ascribe to different procedures. So there's a there's a the CMS, which is the Center for Medicare and Medi- Medicaid Services, mm. get together with insurance companies in Congress and they decide how much uh, money or, or value should be ascribed towards uh, activities in the healthcare space. And they codify this in something called RVUs, relative value units. So a relative value unit is ascribed to a dollar figure. And CMS and insurance companies decide for X procedure, X procedure equals Y amount of RVUs, mm-hmm. and amounts to a certain amount of money. Mm. And you have, you know, on the coding side, medically, you have something called CPT codes and ICD codes. So these things, ICD code is sort of, um, it's a classification of medical diagnoses that are used to establish the basis for claims, medical claims. So you can go to the insurance company and say, I treated this patient for this, and that's establishing that, okay, I need reimbursement for payment. Of, of, they of just want to add as many things as possible. And just be like, hey, I this person needs this, this, and this, and this, and this to rack up the, the number of units or whatever it is. No, right? No, it 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 can't work that way because it has to make it has to make medical sense for it to work that way. Mm-hmm. And also, you have people that um, um, what's the word? You have people that uh, um, sort of survey. Mm-hmm. So you have so let me let's break it down this way. So you have an insurance company. Within an insurance company, you have coders. In mm-hmm. fact, there's a large, large uh, group of coders. 
And their job is to sift through all these codes. They have uh, manuals and, and they decide if whether or not, you know, a certain billing pattern should be flagged as, as not appropriate or passed as appropriate. Mm. So on the physician side, you put in all the ICD codes and the CPT codes, you know, this is the diagnosis, these are the procedures that were done. And it's almost algorithmic because there's so much data acquired over time that you'd expect with this diagnosis, here are the possible um, sort of branches of, uh, of procedures and you know labs that should be ordered that make sense. So if something creeps in there that doesn't make sense, then it's flagged. And then the coders reach out to the, the physician office or the group and say that, oh, this is something, why was this done? There's an auditing process is what, the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So generally that's how um, that's sort of policed. But so you have physicians, you know, sort of putting in these ICD codes, these CPT codes, and then you have insurance companies saying, well, all these patients are paying money to us on a monthly basis, um, or this specific patient is paying this amount of money on a monthly basis or whatever. Um, they had this procedure. This is what the reimbursement for that procedure is to the hospital. The hospital takes that portion or that fraction of the money and then gives it to related parties, the physician, the nurses involved in the care of that patient. So then that's how attending physicians get paid. And so that's, a, that's another distinction, right? Between residents and attendants. So quick, quick question here. So, I mean, does this sound like you get paid according to the number of patients you see? Because it's not, I thought your salaries were kind of fixed, but if it's variable, which is depending on like the diagnosis or the number of patients and stuff like that, does that mean you can earn more and you can potentially earn, double your income if you see more patients? In other words, I'm trying to figure out, is it like not commission-based or like sales, but is it like a fixed salary or is there like a bonus or profit incentives? Like, can you make more? So that's a tricky question too, right? So you have people who are working um, in the private, private space, meaning that they own their own practices. And then you have people that are working under hospital systems. So in the U.S. right now, the landscape is about 50% of physicians, once they're done with residency training, mm. uh, work for hospital systems. Mm. So we'll, talk, we'll start with uh, the patient or physicians in the private uh, sector. So essentially for them, it's whatever, uh, you know, uh, whatever volume they, and again, it's a strange thing that the U.S. system is, uh, the way it's set up and the way reimbursement works, it's, it's volume, um, uh, biased or volume-based more than value-based. And that's a huge sort of ethical um, uh, debate that's going on right now and how physicians are paid. Because you know, how, do you, how do you go around and say, well, you know, there's this patient that comes in, you know, they might have a diagnosis. There's two patients, A and B, they might have the same diagnosis, but this one patient has a flavor of the diagnosis or has these other comorbidities comorbidities of the diagnosis that makes their diagnosis a little bit more complicated, requiring more time, you know, more resources, yet you, the physician, you still get paid, you know, the same amount for mm -hmm. a patient that might have the diagnosis that has less. So that's how it's sort of incentivized because you have these RVUs and from my understanding of it, you know, attendings, uh, you know, are, are paid on the volume of patients they see rather than the value of, mm -hmm. uh, of work, which is a huge problem in itself. Um, but, uh, let's see, I think I lost my, lost no, my train. You said you're talking about private and then people that work at hospitals, I think. Yes. Yes. So then now people that work in the hospital system, 
Um, there are uh, salary negotiations. So there's a contract that's drawn out that this is your sort of base salary and there's arrangements um, and those vary. From my there's arrangements. There's <laughs> arrangements. And those vary. Some people have, um, they have incentives set up that they have RVU targets that they have to hit uh, for them to be in, um, you know, uh, uh, in accordance with their agreed contract. And then there's certain RVU levels that if you do hit, you get bonuses mm. on top of it. Yes. And then my understanding is that there are caps though to these RVU um, incentives. So, and that's all sort of arranged at the negotiation table, you know, what a hospital system is willing to pay you for services and, and so on and so forth. So who exactly is negotiating the hospital and the employees or like the insurance companies in the hospital? Like who, who's negotiating? So negotiations will happen between for, uh, for attending hmm. will happen between the hospital, um, hmm. uh, sort of the executive level of, of the hospital and the, the physician being hired, but there's, there's sort of levels to it. You have the, you have the physician, you have the physician group, and then you have sort of the hospital executive suite, and then they report to each other. So a physician group within a hospital system might want to hire a new, like, you know, attending. And they say that this is what, you know, we've negotiated with the hospital, you know, for payment of, uh, or to pay you coming in. And then that's sort of arranged in, in that way. But then the hospital itself kind of negotiates, um, sort of physician salaries with um, sort of the hospital's insurance uh, office and also Medicare, Medicaid, and um, whatever revenue that is generated by the hospital, it's all sort of arranged by sort of executive uh, branches of the hospital. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And so in terms of, I don't, I mean, our audience probably doesn't even know what attending means. So maybe if you want to explain what the word attending means, but then even so, like what would an attending expect to make in their first or second year? And then someone that has like passed a certain threshold, what would they expect to make? Like in, in short, can you share a bit about the salary bands someone that's in this space can expect over their career? Mm. So that's a great question too. Um, generally, it, it's all dependent on, it, it depends on, uh, so salaries vary by field, uh, pursuit field. Um, so it depends on what you're doing. You have people in primary care and you have people that are in like specialty services and they sort of build differently. And you can only really look at it in terms of averages because you can have you know, a primary care physician that makes you know, way more than a, a specialty care physician or, or vice versa. So it can be very case by case basis, but on average, there are patterns of what to expect you know, as a, uh, so you asked what, what an attending was. An attending is a physician that's completed uh, their residency training and they're fully independent. Um, so there are patterns or averages that they could be looked up online for different specialties, what to expect you know, as a first year attending or you know, um, what to expect as an attending that's had a 10 year practice, what to expect if you work within you know, the private sector for a specific specialty, or if you work within a hospital system for a specific specialty. And then there are, there are ways that um, people kind of um, supplement their base salary 
by doing other things or that are you know healthcare related. You might have partnerships in industry. You might be a researcher, in which case you might get uh, a portion of, or added to your salary from the grants that you generate to do your research, and, and, and so on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I was hoping to get a few more like figures, like hard stats. Do you have any of those available? And it's okay if you don't. Yes. Hard stats. It's it's really hard. Um, you know, like would you say all right? Because I know you're on like the the neurosurgery kind of like track, right? Like that's kind of the way you're trying to go. And like after ten years of working in that space, let's say you've got all your certifications and everything, can you expect? Is it 500K a year? Is it 100K a year? How much loans do people come out of college with on average for medical school? Is it 200K? Like, are there any stats you know of in general? Okay, so, so stats for residency training, right? So, or, or medical training. Yeah. Uh, the average medical student uh, leaves medical school with about $200,000 or $300,000 in debt. Mm. So it costs about $50,000 a year for uh, training for over four years. Hmm. So most students come out with a debt of $200,000, $300,000. Now, for residency training, um, the average salary of a resident is about $50,000. Hmm. And residency lasts about three to eight years. Okay. $50,000 is a very, you know, you would expect, like you mentioned, you know, the, the, um, the idea or the, the, dog, the, the gestalt of medical training is that, oh, you know, if you're a doctor, you have it set up, you should be, you know, you're probably making a whole lot more. But when you look at the reality of a resident salary, you're working about 88 hours a week at $50,000. That's about $12 an hour. So Dude, you're kind of working at Starbucks. Yeah, you're working at minimum wage. And the idea is that, well, there's a return on investment in what you're doing. But there's this huge debate, you know, that's still ongoing on, you know, how how we appraise resident salaries and whether or not, or, or more, more, how do we increase uh, resident salaries? So, and, and this, is a, this is a conversation that, that has a little bit of history attached to it. So resident salaries themselves aren't paid out by hospitals, but they're huh. paid out by, by the government. Oh, really? Yeah, by the government. So the CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, in uh, 1965, decided that uh, educational sort of activity within the healthcare space poses a, a benefit to healthcare for all in this country. So they decided that uh, resident salaries should be paid out by the government. Mm, interesting. Yes. So there is a portion of Medicare or Medicaid that goes into a large portion that determines physician salaries. In 1997, Congress decided to cap the number of residents in training. They said, this is the amount of money we're willing to spend uh, to train physicians. And I think it was something on the order of uh, $10 billion or something like that spread across 100,000 know, physicians. Mm. And so there's, this, there's also this debate that's interesting now. You have medical schools that are expanding the number of seats because we're trying to meet the inevitability that in about 10 years, we're going to be short of physicians. They're not, they're not going to be enough physicians to treat you know, the growing healthcare population, the aging healthcare population. I think for specialty care, things like surgery, the number is projected to be something like 50,000 physicians. For primary care, it's projected to be about 75,000 physicians or so. So you have this bottlenecking that's happening. Medical, medical 
sorry, 50 to 75,000 that were short? Will be short of, yes. Wow, okay. Positions. You have this bottlenecking that's happening. Medical schools are increasing their seats to try to meet this demand. But then on the resident level, the number of, of, of spots to train physicians isn't opening up. Mm. And that creates two big problems. You have people graduating from medical school. You know, they did everything they were supposed to do. They took all the exams. They're doctors, but they can't get spots to get training. You have people that are in $200,000, $300,000 in debt who are trying to do this altruistic thing. And, you know, there's no, there's no avenue for them to continue their training. Then, okay, Congress has decided this is the number of physicians we want to pay, right? But then you find that, you know, hospital systems are largely run, educational centers are largely run by residents. And the, the value that the resident brings to the hospital far exceeds the, the monetary cost that the hospital pays out to physicians, which they get from, you know, um, the government. And for instance, there's a study, the American Society of Anesthesiologists uh, recorded that over a three-year period in an anesthesiology residence training, they generate on, a, on average about $1.3 million for the hospital. And then they cost the hospital about $300,000. Oh, wow. So wide, yeah. This wide, wide margin. And then, so in comes the debate that, well, if the government says that, you know, this is what they're willing to pay for, you know, uh, residence services, why can't the hospital step, step in or step up and say, well, we can then subsidize that pay as well if you're bringing this amount of value into the, you know, the hospital system? So there's a yeah. huge debate. That's pretty crazy. It actually reminds me of tech in a lot of ways. Most people don't know, but the average, if you took the total revenue of Google and divided it by the number of employees, each employee generates like $1.2 million for Google each. And so even if you're paying them $300,000 a year, you're still making four times that amount, right? Uh, as a company. And you know that on its own is mind blowing because you can actually pay someone half a million, even a million, and you're still making money on them, right? So it's such a crazy system, but that's at least a for-profit kind of endeavor because there's a bit of negotiating power, even though a lot of these companies were actually found to be colluding, where they would put in non-compete clauses. And, you know, some of these companies would kind of come into cahoots and say, we're going to set the benchmark of pay at this rate, you know, so that no one really has that bargaining power. But anyway, aside from that, it's interesting to see the parallels in tech and how much is being generated on a per person basis, the differences in tech, someone can actually command a little bit more. They can charge their economic worth as opposed to, you know, an attending or a resident. So what happens after that then? So after you're done with your residency, do you now gain that economic power to bargain? And that's when you get the astronomical medical salaries or like, how does that work? All right. So when you're done with medical training, right, you are then, it's just something to sort of decide that then your salary comes from, you know, the hospital, the, mm -hmm. the profits generated by the hospital. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, you sort of have, there's an element of, of well, relatively speaking, you have increased bargaining power mm -hmm. because now you can go to different hospital systems and say, well, you know, this is, this is who I am and this is the work I do. And what, what, what value do you um, ascribe to people like me who, present, you know, this value, monetarily speaking. And that's when physician salaries actually, you know, go up. I mean, they're, 
they're more than, um, and they can go as high as tenfold mm. or 20-fold what, uh, what you might have been making as like a resident. A resident. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. And I mean, you kind of mentioned it, the number of hours worked. So you're working 88 hours or residents or attendings are working 88 hours, making as much as a Starbucks kind of employee. I mean, why would you stay in that field? Why, like, why wouldn't a lot of, especially in the context of the bottlenecks that you mentioned as well, there might not be enough spots. You've got all the student debt. Is it kind of like you're so far into this field, you might as well continue, even though you've sacrificed your 20s and 30s, you've made minimum wage, you've gone through all that. And it's like, you might as well stay to get that light at the end of the tunnel. But I would imagine a lot more people would quit and just be like, look, I'm just going to go do something else with my time as opposed to doing this. You know, I think, I think um, if I'm honest about it, I think there are a lot of people that are, that um, are in a, uh, a difficult position by the time they're done with their medical training and they've accrued so much debt, you know, that you're sort of incentivized to, to go on or to carry on, you know, because at the, end of, at the end of it all, there's a salary that's promised that can then help you pay off that debt. I think there are a lot of people that fall, you know, within that category. And I think the reality, there's an economic reality to, to pursuing medicine that isn't fully appreciated, I think, uh, until you're within, you know, residency or within within training after medical school. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of people that I think fall into that uh, that sort of category. And then, I mean, you have a lot of people that are also interested in, you know, doing the right thing. Um, it's a, it, it is a very altruistic field if you're someone who's interested in helping people and so on. It, it, it gives you that, but then, you know, there are economic realities and costs that you pay for, for doing that. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's just a matter of what's fair. You know, if someone's working 80 hours a week, how do we, for very complicated, um, you know, uh, skills, I mean, the people they're laying hands on, on human lives and saving lives, um, there are years spent studying. There are board exams that are paid for. I mean, that run into the thousands just to sit down and take an exam, paying $2,000 out of pocket. There's so much that goes into it. And then we then, how do we, as a, as a society, you know, then say that you know, this, this work is valued at something that's below minimum wage? Mm-hmm. So yes, there is a, it's a price um, there's a uh, there's a hike in salaries after resident training, but this this sort of space that we're in, where in residency you're, you're being paid, it's an artificially set limit. Mm. We can pay what we can pay value for services, and it, it it couldn't really work. I don't think in any other like industry in that way, where there's a certain value or, or a certain service that's 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 met, but then the the compensation for that service is, is far less. I don't. I can't think of many, many industries that are like that. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the medical world is very free market driven. You know, when you hear why the prices are so high, you hear things such as the government is not able to negotiate prices with, you know, insurers and things of that nature. And now I'm hearing this as well. Things are capped, and it seems like it's a lot more or a lot less free market driven than you would have expected even though it's still probably better than most of the world. That's why a lot of doctors leave Europe and other places in the world to come to the US because they can earn a lot more. In fact, there've been a lot of strikes in the UK. I'm not sure if you've seen them, but you know, paramedics and health services. Yeah, ER, they're all like on strike because honestly, yeah, they're earning next to you know nothing compared to the skill set they bring and their economic value. So 
yeah, it's good to hear from like the, the belly of the beast from the inside, like what's actually happening and, and what what the, the construct is. Off the top of my mind, I think that entrepreneurship might be a great avenue for those that have the knowledge and have identified the loopholes within that space to go and start a startup or create something new, because then you have unlimited upside, right? If you sell to as many hospitals, it's, it's, that's one way that I think you can uncap your your earnings or I don't know your economic potential during that residency time frame. But as you mentioned, if you're working 80 hours a week, 88 hours a week, I mean, you're probably going straight home, like getting some ramen noodles on and then watching like something on Netflix for half an hour and then waking up the next day at like 4 a.m. to get back to work. So yeah, it's a, it's probably it's it's really a crazy system from the outside listening in. Absolutely. And I mean there's still I mean and even like getting home, you, you still have to, you know, there's things to do. You still have to study for board exams. You still have to, you might have to follow up on some, you know, patient reading for the next day. So there's still work that even happens after, after the, you know, the hours. And just to, just to touch on what you said. So healthcare in, in the U.S. is very much a profit-based, um, you know, system. It, it's, it is for profit overall in the U.S. And there's a lot of money that's sort of, um, that healthcare generates, and and one criticism, it's public known criticism, is is the amount of um, uh, compensation that players within the healthcare space make relative to other players. One of the huge divides is between like health insurance uh, companies and actual like medical practitioners, you know, doctors, nurses. The the gap between compensation is is it's a chasm. Mm-hmm. You look at the top seven. Uh, insurance companies within the U.S., if you look at their uh, CEO revenues, these are people that may have not even laid a hand on a patient ever, are making, uh, here's a good example, the top um, you know, health uh, insurance company in the U.S. is probably Cigna. You know, their CEO over 10 years, you know, accrued a, uh, a salary of $365 million over 10 years. Yeah. And, and those are, those are, that's, that's sort of the numbers you're, you're looking at. And is he a doctor or is she a doctor or they're probably an MBA from somewhere? <laughs> or an MBA from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then you wonder like over 10 years, there's no, there's no physician job that accrues $365 million over 10 years. There's, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's crazy. Um, I mean, even in broader society, even beyond the medical world, I believe it was sometime in the sixties and seventies, you know, the CEO to average earner um, ratio was something like one to 30. And now it's ballooned astronomically. It's like one to 60, one to a hundred, you know? And so the top is getting richer and then everyone else is kind of treading water. Um, Everything from even house prices. I saw something today where they were comparing the, uh, the ratio of earnings to house prices in the year 2000 compared to the year 2023. And it was at like three point something, you know, so three times your earnings could get you a house in maybe not in New York, but in somewhere in the country. But then it went up to like 5.6 as of last year. It was like the highest in like 20 something years, you know. Um, So, yeah, that seems to be happening everywhere. But as you mentioned, there's this perception that the medical world is more altruistic. It's about actually helping people. It's about, you know, but it, it just seems that the reality of wanting to actually help people. Um, and the economic benefits of actually helping people are so distorted. It's so out of whack 
that I would love to see some equilibrium happen at some point. But who knows? Maybe maybe Chat GPT will be the the thing that equalizes it and makes you work half as many hours because you have this robotic assistant helping you um, that's giving better accuracy and things of that nature. So who knows? I don't know. We'll see. Who knows? That's an interesting, uh, interesting thought though. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's, just, maybe AI is the solution. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we've had a, a good run here for about 40, 45 minutes. We'll probably have you back on another episode, but um, if you have any parting oh, thoughts, feel free to share it with the audience. It's mostly entrepreneurs tech investors, venture capitalists that listen to the show. Um, but thanks so much for being on the show, Mo. Oh, no worries. Sarge. I loved it. Loved it. Um, yeah, I'd love to be back. Had a great time. Um, you know, if, if, if I had to leave with parting words for uh, you know, entrepreneurs, I guess, which are the, the, the main audience consuming the podcast, I think uh, people who are interested in uh, opportunities, especially within tech uh, or tech and innovation within medical sciences should, should really do their, um, do their work in finding physician collaborators. Mm. Those are the people that are going to provide, you know, the ideas that could be grown, um, you know, together because there's business ideas and there's, you know, there's the, the medical ideas and those things need to come together. I think that's my big sort of um, parting message if I had to give one to an entrepreneur. Sounds good, man. Thanks. Cheers. No worries. Cheers, my man.